Let's humble ourselves and pray. Our Father and our God, what a joy it is to gather for the singing, the praying, the reading, the preaching of your word. Would you please form our hearts and our minds according to your will this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a morning. It is a joy for me to be here. My name is John Paul Stepanian, and I am a missionary sent by your church, sent by Grace Church Monterey Bay to serve in Uganda. Um, We are tremendously grateful for your partnership in the gospel work that's happening there. It, It is a joy to serve there, and it is a joy to come here and to meet with you and spend time with you. Um, and we are, we are so thankful. We're thankful to the church. We're thankful to the many individuals who are also supporting us. Um, but right now, we are here not to hear about Uganda, but we're here to hear, here to hear from God's word. Um, so would you please open your copy of God's word to Colossians chapter 3. We will be looking at verses 1 through 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 984. The big numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses. Um, So we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me give you a brief background on Colossians. So Paul, who wrote this letter, never visited Colossae. Uh, He says in chapter 2, verse 1, that they haven't seen him face to face, unlike uh, the Galatian church, the Ephesian church, uh, the Roman church. Um, he had never been to, to Colossae. Um, probably what happened was while he was in Ephesus, it says the whole region heard the word of God. There was a guy um, probably named Epaphras who heard God's word, heard the gospel, and then went to Colossae, uh, preached the gospel. A lot of people got saved, established a church. And then five to seven years later, in Colossae, the problems are cropping up. So Epaphras searches out Paul and finds him uh, in Rome, and he goes and he shares, hey, we got some problems in our church. And so Paul writes this letter in response to those issues to this church through their faithful servant Epaphras. Um, the problems that Paul addresses in this letter are difficult to identify, and That's because they aren't really clearly spelled out in the letter, but we can make some educated guesses based on some of the texts in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, verse 8, and chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, um, we can guess kind of what the issues were. It seems like that the Colossian church wasn't denying that Christ was necessary for salvation, but they were denying that Christ was sufficient for the Christian life. They were denying that Christ was sufficient for the Christian life. This is seen in in 2.8 in the warning. um, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or the principles of this world, not according to Christ. Um, There might have been some Jewish mysticism stuff mixed in there. In uh, verses 16 through 23, he talks about not getting confused about having to do Sabbath observations and dietary laws and stuff like that. Um, So when we we come to our text, Paul is going to give us some basic instructions for gospel growth. 
He's going to give us some basic instructions for gospel growth. He's going to answer questions like, how do I grow in obedience and holiness? Is it through observing dietary laws and special holidays? He's going to answer no, by the way. Um, he's going to, but he's basically answering, what does it mean to live like a Christian? So with that brief background, let's now turn our attention to verses 1 through 17. Would you please stand with me again as I read God's holy word in honor of him? <clears throat> Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray again. Oh, Lord Jesus, fill our hearts and our minds with right thoughts of you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So what we are going to see today in Colossians 3 is the basic pattern of Christian growth. And this is it in three steps. Look up, put off, put on. That's it. Let me say it again. Look up, put off, put on. How many steps? Three. Let's say them together. Look up, put off, put on. Great, you got it. All right. So point number one, look up. We're going to see this from verses one through four. Look up. There are two commands that are given here, and they're similar. First, he says, seek. Then he says, 
set, right? Seek the things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above. Literally, think on things above. Basically, I summarize it as look up, look to Christ, right? But before we consider those commands, he introduces by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ. We can't run right past that because it's really important. So the then is a connecting word pointing back to what Paul has just talked about and is a contrast with the misguided ways the Colossian church is trying to live out the Christian life. They're elevating human tradition and precepts and teachings according to chapter 2, verse 8 and 22. These human traditions and philosophies aren't spelled out in the text, but it's clear that they're tempting the, the Colossian church. So they appear wise in some ways. They, they appear useful for Christian life, but in fact, they're worthless in terms of stopping the indulgence of the flesh, according to verse 20, chapter 2, verse 23. So the Colossian church was becoming interested in human philosophies and traditions, maybe theories and experiences that promised human flourishing, but in fact ignored the author of life. In fact, we could summarize the message of the whole book of Colossians in this way. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus nothing equals everything. All right, Paul is saying these deceitfully interesting theories are wrongheaded. Therefore, put your minds on things above. What's above? Christ. That's what we're supposed to think about, right? Now, the if, that's the then, if we look at the if, it's the first word there, it's kind of small, but it's important, right? It's a conjunction that introduces a condition, right? The condition is if you have been raised with Christ, if you could say you have been converted or born again or united to Christ, if you are saved, right? The first concern of Paul is whether or not you yourself are a Christian, and by the way, it's not safe to assume this. We shouldn't just assume that we're saved because we're not born saved. Our baptism doesn't save us. Our attendance here this morning is not what God looks upon to satisfy his wrath, right? The beginning of growing as a Christian is first to know and understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we are saved. It's a vital first step because... If you're not a Christian, you can, in fact, by efforts, change unhealthy patterns in your life, but remain under God's judgment. So I worked with a man when I was a project manager in construction who, who had been clean and sober for 22 years, and he was very pleased with that, and I praise the Lord for that common grace in his life. But I asked him one day, what, what is the point, Jim, of being clean and sober? And his response to me was, to live a better life. And in the world's estimation, he has a better life. But I just wonder, in God's estimation, if he has submitted to the worldly wisdom of do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, which is exactly what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 21. And he simply exchanged one idol for a more socially acceptable idol, that of having a better life. Right? So how then are we to please God? First, we must be raised with Christ. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and we're destined for God's wrath in hell. 
We must have new spiritual life in Christ. How does that happen? How does somebody get saved from God's wrath? Well, we're going to take a minute here and talk about it. Because a sermon isn't a sermon unless it has the gospel in it, right? That's what makes a sermon a sermon and not a motivational speech. (laughs) So the gospel is the message from God contained in the Bible that's preached from this pulpit every Sunday, and it goes like this. God is the holy creator. He is the holy judge, and he's devoted to his own glory. In Isaiah chapter 6, the angels are crying out forever, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the holy creator. He's devoted to his own glory. Secondly, all people are sinful and condemned by God. In Romans 3.10, it says, no one is righteous. No, not one. In Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, all are dead in trespasses, right? The paycheck of your sin is death. And we all get that because we all sin. And our sin makes us guilty before God because he is holy and he punishes all sin. But thirdly, the good news is that Jesus Christ received God's punishment for sin on behalf of those who repent and believe in him. Colossians 2.14 describes this in an amazing image. He says, God cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he cancel it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Who was nailed to the cross? Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? He was nailed to the cross. He gave himself on a cross to receive the punishment for sin that we deserve. My sin debt against God was paid by Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. 1 Peter 3.18. The good news is that Jesus didn't stay dead. If he had, it wouldn't have been that remarkable. But he rose from the dead, right? Proving that his death was an acceptable sacrifice, right? He also proved his victory over sin and over death by rising from the dead, My hope is in Jesus because he rose from the dead. That's the biggest problem we all have, right? Everyone's going to die. That's a big problem. Everyone has struggles. But if Jesus rose from the dead, he can handle the biggest problem. My hope is on him, right? This, this, But this payment of debt and sin only applies to those who repent and believe in him. So the gospel comes with this gracious command from God to repent and to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. The benefits of salvation are received not by coming to church, not by getting baptized, not by reading the Bible. The benefits of salvation are received by faith. Faith. Oh, this is such good news, which is itself a gift from God. So before we get into gospel growth, we first have to know, are you saved? Am I saved? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ? The greatest challenge in your life is not financial. It's not medical. It's not relational. It's God's wrath against your sin. And your only hope is to be raised with Christ, the holy and righteous Savior through whom the record of debt against us was permanently canceled. 
So are you depending on Christ for salvation? We cannot run past this to figure out how to live a gospel-centered life and how to grow in holiness. We can't run past this, okay? We must understand the gospel. We must understand salvation. That is step one through 10, and there are only 10 steps, all right? So Dom, the elders of the church, myself, if you have not trusted in Christ, we would love to talk to you about this. That's why this church exists, to be a faithful gospel witness here in this community, right? So please do not leave today. Mark it down. It's the 25th of July, 2021. You have an opportunity to know Jesus Christ, the Savior of your souls. Don't leave today until you get right with God. This matters for eternity. Please, I'm pleading with you. Don't leave today. It matters forever. God loves you so much. He made you in his image for his glory. And apart from the work of his son, you're under his wrath forever. So please, don't neglect this. So now we return to the commands. What does he say? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above. Christian growth requires active mental work to put your minds on things above. Okay? What is above? Obviously, Christ. We must put our minds on Jesus Christ, his person and his work. We must look up not to the top of a mountain where we live in Uganda. There are some holy shrines up on mountains. People like to go to the top of the mountain to try to have some spiritual experience or connect with their ancestors and get some power over some problem in their life. No, we must look up, not to the stars, right? We're not depending on the alignment of the stars or their movements, but we're looking to heaven, to Christ himself. We must be thinking about Jesus Christ. The battle between your flesh and the spirit occurs on the table of your mind. How do we succeed in this? Well, later he says, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, meaning that gospel go growth comes through knowing truth in greater depth, in greater breadth. Are you exposing yourself to God's word? Are you exposing yourself to faithful teaching of God's word regularly? Are you faithfully gathering with a, with a church that's teaching the Bible every week, it is so, so, so important that you are. So God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, must seek and set our minds on Christ. We must, step one, look up, All right? Now, in verses three and four, he gives us two reasons to look up, two reasons. Reason number one is in the past. Reason number one is in the future, right? In the past, you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a fundamental change that God has worked in the life of every one of his children. The death that he talks about, you have died. It's a spiritual death, but it's a real death. It's a death to the elemental principles of this world that he talked about in chapter 2, verse 20. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 says that we have died to sin, as in sin is no longer our master. We're not enslaved by the desires of our flesh and by sin, but now Christ is our master. We're freed from that to obey God. We're not free from sin to do whatever we want. We're free to obey more and more, um, whereas before we were slaves to sin. So the first reason is we look back 
We thank God for our union with Christ that has already happened in his death and in his resurrection. And an amazing picture of this is baptism, right? You see it in color, in detail, visually, and auditorily, orally, orally, there we go, right? It's baptism, right? It's this picture of death and resurrection. We're identifying with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, according to Romans 6. But he gives a second reason that we should look up because, and it's a future reason, right? He says, we look forward to glorification with Christ. And I'll tell you, I'm not that old, but living in Uganda has revealed my physical weakness to myself (laughs) in greater detail than ever before. (laughs) I feel the frailty of my flesh and the nearness of death more now than I ever have in my life. So we've been there for two years, and I, I keep a record in the back of one of my notebooks of the people that I personally know that have died and I think I'm up to about a dozen, just in two years that I've known. One of them was a three-year-old kid. One of them was a 38-year-old, the wife of a a man in my Bible study. She had asthma, couldn't make it to the hospital. She died. That was it, right? Guys, our future hope is glorious. We're getting a new body, right? We're going to be with the Lord forever, right? For a Christian, death is a door of hope into eternal life, into glorification with Christ. For someone who doesn't know Christ, death is terrifying, and it should be, right? In Philippians 3.21, says, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. All flesh is grass. It's going to die, right? So we look to Christ for glorification. So we set our minds on Christ. We seek Christ because of what he's done in the past and what he's going to do in the future, And that's a joy. So let's summarize. We look up to Christ because he saved us in the past and he's going to save us all the way to heaven. And by faith, we receive all the benefits of the covenant of grace that God has accomplished. So um, how does this work in life? I remember that Sarah and I had an opportunity to do some premarital counseling with Josh and John Lynn. So Jonathan's uh, brother and... Mindy's daughter. And, uh, and as we were thinking and praying about how to do this premarital counseling, we would, we would talk and we would strategize, how can we point the coons to Christ every time in our premarital counseling sessions? How can we encourage them to know and magnify Christ in their communication, in their finances, in their family relationships, in their intimacy, in their work, in their parenting, in their service? We want them to look up, look up to Christ right? That is what we must do. That's the first step in gospel growth is look to Christ. Look to Christ. But we must go on. So what is step number two? It's put off. Step number one is look up. Step number two is put off. So in verses five through nine, the Lord provides us with a vice list. So you've heard of virtue lists. This is a vice list. These are actions and attitudes that are displeasing to God, that are contrary to God's law. Um, First, he commands believers to put to death what is earthly in us. Notice the strong language, put it to death. This is not negotiation. This is not diplomatic discussion of relative merits of certain behaviors or attitudes. Sins are to be systematically executed and expelled from the believer's life. We must be on a search and destroy mission 
for sin in our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 1, God calls us to be holy. In Ephesians chapter 5, he tells us, walk as children of the light. 1 John chapter 3, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So it's very clear that God expects his children, those who represent him, to be growing in personal holiness. In fact, we just recited that in um, principle, no, section number 13, right? Shun worldliness, put on Christ, shun worldliness. That's vital, right? It's not, op- it's not an optional upgrade for really serious Christians, but it's rather an order from our master. Now observe that list in, in verse five. The first four items on this list are related to sexuality. Sexual sin of any type has no place in the Christian's life. In fact, he uses four different terms to describe sexual sin. There it is. Sexual immorality, which is pornea in the Greek. Impurity, passion, evil desire, or lustful desire. It's right there. These descriptors cover every aspect of sexual sin. Fornication, Adultery, lustful feelings, impure actions, thoughts, motives, behaviors. There's no wiggle room here for rationalization. None. The late night porn binge is sin. The lustful glance at the shirtless hiker that forgot his or her shirt is sin. The careful observation of certain advertisements is sin. Romance novels stoking imaginary fantasies are sin. Put them to death. He next calls out covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is a strong desire. You could say greediness. Um, It's a desire that without being fulfilled yields dissatisfaction. It's not wrong to have desires. We have desires. But a desire that is covetousness is identified by wanting something in such a way that your satisfaction or your security depends on you having it or getting it. So back in 2006... I had the opportunity to purchase a 1983 Mercedes-Benz 300D turbo diesel uh, from Carmel, actually. And I had a vision of modifying it to run it on vegetable oil. And uh, it was a fun project. I figured it out, uh, got it running. um, But I found after a year or two, I was like dreaming about it in bed at night. And uh, every spare moment, I I would hop online and try to research some other modification or upgrade or something. Um, Then I found myself not only dreaming about it, but uh, late at night I would be under the car, turning wrenches. Um, And sometimes, in fact, there would be some conflict between Sarah and I on on how much money I was spending on tools and parts and those sorts of things. Um, My mind was becoming set on an earthly thing. Right? I was feeding my appetite for an earthly thing with my time and my money and my thoughts, and I wanted more. I wanted more and more. And frankly, it, it had become an idol to me, and I would feel frustrated when I wasn't able to devote time and money that I had planned to this particular project. Um, and I found myself making sacrifices to this particular idol with my time and my money. Um, but when Jack was born, our second child, The stress of baby number two exposed me for how much my heart was devoted to this, right? Is it wrong to enjoy cars? No, right? Is it wrong to have a hobby? No, right? 
Is it wrong to hold any earthly thing so dear and precious that your sanctification, your satisfaction, security depends on it? Yeah, that's wrong. That's sin, right? And God often graciously allows trials in our lives to teach us this. Is your heart tempted to covet something? An object, a device, someone else's spouse or a spouse in general, a property, a position, a job? Our hearts can turn anything into an idol, anything at all, right? We must put that to death, brothers and sisters. Finally, he lists anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. And uh, we're not going to go through all of these in detail because of time, but malice and slander can be related to character assassination, right? We don't like a decision someone makes, a spouse, a boss, a colleague, a politician, anyone really, Instead of discussing the issue, overlooking an offense or submitting, we assassinate their character in our minds. We meditate in ways that say, well, if he wasn't so self-centered, ignorant, or arrogant, he would have made the right decision, right? If the people running this thing weren't so stupid and full of themselves, we'd be somewhere by now. These types of slanderous thoughts and the simmering anger behind them are displeasing to God. And they're the work of our flesh. James chapter 1, verse 20 says, the anger of God does not produce, I'm sorry, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Sorry about that. But shouldn't Christians rather be known for their purity of speech? Right? He says, put away obscene talk from your mouth. The prohibition against obscene talk includes not only four-letter words, but topics and subjects that are not fitting for Christians to discuss. Again, James 1, 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It's worthless, right? So these are things we must put off. We must put to death sexual sin, verbal sin, hate, lying. In fact, we used to live in these. The sewage of sin used to be the swamp we swam in every day. Because of sin, God was storing up his wrath against us according to verse 6. In our context in Uganda, it's a culture with no history of reformation, no Christian heritage whatsoever, and it's painfully evident. We had a a grandma in our community instructing her six-year-old granddaughter how to get a cell phone. The way to do it, of course, just give the men what they want, and they'll give you what you want, all right? Or maybe if in your, you're in a developed nation and you're tempted by Netflix, sexualized productions fe- featuring children. It's shocking, right? Or the lie that all your personal desires are good and must be respected, right? We used to participate without reservation and enjoy sin. May the Lord have mercy on us for those wicked and destructive acts and attitudes that we used to walk in apart from Christ, right? But Christian, you have been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son, right? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. These hedonistic behaviors and attitudes that are pagan destroy the body, the soul, the church, and society. So let's review. Step number one is look up. Step number two, put off. Step number three, put on. There we go. So look up, put off, 
put on. This is what we must positively do. So there's the negative, put off. Now there's the positive, put on, right? In Colossians 3, 10 through 17, Paul lists several things we are to put on. Compassion, kindness, humility, and so on. Notice, even though he's using the metaphor of clothing, he says, he says uh, first he says, put away or lay aside, and then he says, put on. He's not telling us to physically put on love. Finding a shirt, a bumper sticker, a ring, a necklace that says compassion may be a useful reminder, okay? But in all likelihood, it will do little to transform your character. I remember in high school wearing a WWJD bracelet, right? Um, it's actually a really good mental practice to think, what would Jesus do? We're supposed to follow Jesus. We're supposed to imitate him. So that's a good practice in our minds, right? Um, but I confess, I was generally a selfish jerk. And looking back, I don't think that wearing that bracelet transformed my character that much, to be honest with you. Um, so he's not telling us to physically put things on. It's, it's not a physical activity, but it's a mental exercise, right? We must reckon ourselves as God declares us, or consider ourselves, as it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. It says, so you, must, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Considering ourselves according to God's work in our lives and according to Christ. He's, here we are. We're back to step one. Look up, right? We're supposed to consider what God has done in our lives. Sometimes theologians talk about our position in Christ and our practice of life. It's a useful distinction. So in our position, God declares us righteous. It's called justification. That's what God does, right? But in our practice, Christ, in Christ, we're also called to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord, according to Hebrews 12, verse 14, right? We must grow in the practice of holiness. So then we have to ask, so is it God working in us to produce his holiness? Or is it me working to produce holiness? And it's clear that when we're talking about Christian growth and holiness, it's both. It's both. We could say that this is a synergistic work. The two, God working in us and us working according to God's commands and by his strength and because of his mercy, we're both working to grow in holiness, right? That's why these commands like in Peter where he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, those make sense. It's not a passive experience where we just, we open our hands and we say, okay, God, make me holy. I'm waiting. Today? Tomorrow? No. We have activities that we need to be doing. And the activity that he's talking about here is a mental activity. We need to seek and set our minds on Christ, right? Um, that's, that's what we need to be doing. Even in, here in this passage, there's, there's the, the work of Christ and the work of God and our work. So he's commanding us to put these things off and put these things on, but it also points to God's work in, in chapter 3, verse 10, right here. And he says, uh, do not lie, this is verse 9, to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That is being renewed is a passive verb. Who is doing the renewing? God, right? God in Christ is the one doing the renewing, right? So there's a work of God, but there's also a response of obedience that God commands us to do, right? So again, we don't have time to look in detail, in detail at all these virtues, um, but these are the virtues of Christ. 
In one sense, we're called to put on Christ. I don't want to run past this, though. We need to take a a look at verse 11. Let me read it again. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Notice that God gives us specific teaching related to race, cultural differences, and economic status. These differences we have in the body of Christ are not to be what defines our identity. Let me say that again. These differences that we have in the body of Christ are not to be what defines our identity as individual Christians or corporately as a church. The non-Christian will emphasize these earthly distinctions and make much of their seeming importance in establishing identity. So it sounds something like this. I'm Armenian. I am actually Armenian. Um, My people have been subject to genocide. You don't know the suffering that we've lived through. So you need to respect me and my experience. And if you don't, oh, you fool. Right? That's worldly thinking right there, right? That's totally worldly, right? By contrast, in Christ's church, these earthly distinctions are not what give definition and identity to God's people. So just to use this silly example again, my personal Armenian heritage and background are relatively unimportant when compared to the fact that I am a descendant of Adam, like the rest of us, right? And as such, I was a slave to sin until I was regenerated and adopted into the family of God and now have God himself as my father. That heritage is far more important, right? Do I deny the heritage of my flesh? No, I'm thankful for it, right? I thank God for his kind providence, allowing me to live in this time, in this place, with the family that he's given me, right? But Christ is all and in all for every believer. Christ is our total concern and joy. Christ is in every believer. And the greatest identity marker of every believer is Christ. It's Christ. The earthly distinctions between us fade in importance compared to our new identity in the living Christ. One of the joys, and I think some of you have experienced this, of working in another place, is finding believers from vastly different backgrounds and knowing an immediate sense of brotherhood and Christian love because we are in Christ. That's what identifies us most deeply, right, is the presence of Christ. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here. We could take this one step further and ask ourselves as Christians, are we signaling the virtues of Christ? These Christ-like qualities are what should mark us. Unique kindness and forgiveness when they are undeserved because the Lord himself has forgiven us. Humility, patience, compassion should be the virtues on display that signal our allegiance to Christ. Are we more concerned to identify ourselves with our earthly heritage or our heavenly inheritance? The Bible teaches that race, tribe, and tongue matter. Revelation 7, verse 9. They're all there, right? They're around the throne worshiping Jesus at the end. But it's far more important that we are all worshiping Jesus 
than that we are ensuring that our identity as an American, a Mexican, an African, Armenian, as a business owner or a day laborer is known and respected. It's far more important that we identify with Christ. Christ, he says it here. Look Look in the text right here at the end of verse 11. Christ is all. He is our greatest concern. He is the foundation of our identity. We are a new creation in Christ. We are new creation, right? That is fundamental, brothers and sisters. Do not lose sight of that. It's very tempting right now to hold on to another identity and say, this is what makes my life meaningful. If you don't respect this, you're a fool. (laughs) Oh, brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Look to Christ. He's our hope and our joy. He's the one that, in fact, equips us with, with compassion to interact with people and brothers and sisters that are trapped in that mindset, right? But the greatest of these virtues is love. Are you loving your neighbor in this weird and confusing time? <laughs> or are you impatient and uncompassionate toward them? Are you loving your pastors and elders by submitting to their leadership in this church? Or are you slandering them behind their backs as they struggle to be diligent to lead the church in a way pleasing to God in a trying time? Pray for Nick. Pray for Don. Encourage them, right? They're faithfully serving. They're, they're struggling to present you mature in Christ, right? That is a gift from God, right? Are we better known for loving our government leaders by praying faithfully for them, as 1 Timothy 2 commands us to do? Or are we better known for expressing our righteous opinions of our civil, civil government, which Christ does not command us to do? Right? Are we signaling that the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts by bearing with one another? It's right there, guys. Verse 13, bearing with one another right? Or are we consumed with things that are on earth and biting and devouring each other over differences that we may look back on in 10 years with shame? Are we looking up to Christ as we wrestle with how to steward our bodies? Vaccine, don't vaccine, right? Look to Christ. It matters, right? For church, Christ is all and in all. For you, Christian, Christ is all and in all. Church, we must, must be putting on the virtues of Christ. We must be looking up, putting off, and putting on. Now, after he states this cardinal virtue, love, God instructs us three times to do something in verses 15, 16, and 17. It's repeated. Take a look. See if you can find it. It's repeated three times. What is it? Be thankful. Be thankful. He says it three times. Thankfulness is extremely important to God. First of all, that should be obvious because he says it three times, right? The next thing that's obvious is that it's a command. It's a command. And be thankful. It's an imperative. It's a requirement that God has laid upon his people in verse 15, right? It's the fact that it's a command should teach us that thankfulness is not an emotion or feeling that we wait for. It is a discipline of our heart and mind. 
Notice also that the object of our thankfulness is clearly stated, right? With thankfulness in your hearts to whom? To God, right? We are thank- we're not thankful in some vague sense to whomever is responsible for some good thing in our life. No, James 1.17 says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? Above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Praise Jesus, right? Our thankfulness is directed to God. Is there anything good in your life? Anything at all? Maybe you ate something this morning? Thank you, Jesus, right? Maybe you enjoyed these beautiful paved roads to get here today. (laughs) It's amazing how fast you can travel. Maybe you enjoyed the common graces of civil government that provide traffic laws so that people aren't trying to run you over and drive all over crazy and kill you, right? Wow, praise the Lord. That's a gift of grace, right? Every good and every perfect gift is from above. That's from God, right? Thank God that we here right now enjoy a civil government that provides a police force to restrain evil. Just north of me in South Sudan, it is the Wild West. You have cows and I want them, boom, they're mine. And there's, the government's not strong enough to restrain evil. That's scary, That guy that just murdered somebody, he's not going to jail. One of the guys that I work with, his father-in-law was angry with him. So he came and he burned down his house with his wife and his two children inside of it. The guy that I work with, his name is Gordon Muhanji. He came and now he's working with our ministry. There's no justice for the man that murdered his own daughter and grandchildren. He's living right? Oh, thank God for his common graces. Thank God for every good gift you have. Oh, he is so good, right? But that pales in comparison to the real reason we should be thankful. Look carefully at verse 12. He slips it in. Why, Christian, must we be disciplined in our gratitude? Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, right? The first and greatest reason that we must be thankful is that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Are you a Christian? Thank God for his selection of your soul for eternal salvation. You are beloved. You are declared holy in Christ. Thank God. That's the first and greatest reason we we must be disciplined in our gratitude, right? That's why Terry plays the drums and we sing, thank you, God, right? Right there, because God saves people that don't deserve to be saved. So point number three, put on the virtues of Christ. Let's review really quick. Step number one, look up to Christ. Step number two, put off. Step number three, let's do it again. Step number one, look up. Step number two, put off. Step number three, There you go. Good job. You got it. Now, let's wrap this up here. Most of us have a sense of right and wrong. Many of us have a conscience that's sensitive to the things of the Lord. We want to do what's right. But frequently, the big question for us is how? How in the world are we to grow in in Christ? Where will we get the power 
to actually put to death what is earthly in us? Where will we get the power to put on the virtues of Christ? The bigger problem is not usually what I should stop doing and start doing, although we do need instruction, but rather the bigger problem is frequently the need for actual power to put to death sin and start walking in a manner worthy of our calling. If we attack sin head on, we may succeed, but usually it's partially successful. It's like saying to yourself, stop loving money, stop loving money, stop loving money, stop loving money. Is that helpful? Well, I'm repeating what I need to be putting off. Repetition is the mother of learning. Mm. My mind is the table. Remember, that's where the battle occurs between my flesh and the spirit. So what do I do? Go back to step one. Start with Christ. We continue with Christ. Our future is secure in Christ. Look up to Christ. Other methods may be effective in behavior modification, but the bottom line is, are they pleasing to God? Are they of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh according to chapter 2, verse 23, right? We must look up to the Lord Jesus Christ if we will ever make progress in growing in holiness that pleases the Lord. But who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's finish today by taking a look across the book of Colossians and seeing what God has revealed about his son the Lord Jesus Christ. So right now, we're going to practice setting our minds on Christ. That's step one, right? Right now, we're going to do that. So see if you can follow along with me. We're going to start in chapter one. In chapter one, verse three, the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of God the Father. Chapter one, verse four, Christ is the object of our faith. Chapter one, 13, Christ is the king that received saints into his kingdom. Chapter one, verse 14, Christ is the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 115, Christ is the image of the invisible God. 115, again, he's the firstborn of all creation, as in the principal heir of God's promises. 116, by Christ, all things were created, and in all, and all things were created for Christ. And 117, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In 118, Christ is the head of the body of the church. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In 119, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 120, Christ is the reconciler of all things to God. Also in verse 20, Christ is the one who makes peace between you and God by the blood of his cross. In 122, Christ reconciled us to God in his body of flesh by his death. Again, in verse 22, Christ died to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. In 124, Christ was afflicted for the sake of his body, the church. In 126, Christ's indwelling is the mystery hidden for generations. In fact, in verse 127, the riches of the glory of the mystery is Christ in you. And Christ in you is the hope of glory. Chapter 1, verse 28, Christ energizes the toil and struggle of his servants that work for your sanctification. Chapter 2, verse 2, Christ is the revelation of God's mysterious work. Chapter 2, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2, verse 6, Christ is received by his people as Lord. Chapter 2, verse 7, God's people are rooted and built up in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 8, Christ is contrary to human tradition and the elemental elemental principles of the world. Chapter 2, verse 9, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Chapter 2, verse 10, God's people have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Chapter 2, verse 11, in Christ, God's people are circumcised with the spiritual circumcision of the heart. 
Chapter 2, verse 12, Christ is the one to whom God's people are united in death and powerful resurrection. Chapter 2, verse 13, God made his people alive together with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14, Christ nailed to the cross and so bore the record of debt that stood against us. In chapter 2, verse 17, Christ is the substance, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath dietary laws. Chapter 2, verse 19, Christ is the head from whom the whole body grows with a growth from God. Chapter 3, verse 1, Christ is above seated as king and mediator at the right hand of God. Chapter 3, verse 3, Christ is the one in whom believers are hidden. Chapter 3, verse 4, Christ is the life of every believer. He will appear in glory. Chapter 3, 11, Christ is in all who are saved, regardless of race, culture, economic status. Chapter 3, verse 15, Christ is the one who makes peace. Chapter 3, verse 16, the word of Christ shared in is God's means of transforming his people. Chapter 3, verse 17, the name and character of Christ is the manner in which we must do everything. Do you see something of the glory of Christ? Do you see just a little bit of it? We just did two and a half chapters. That's it. There are 1,189 chapters of the glory of Jesus Christ right here. This is God's precious treasure. Brothers and sisters, let's look to Christ. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we joyfully approach your throne of grace by the merits of Christ, so thankful for the indescribable gift you have given us in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have revealed the mystery hidden for generations in Christ. You have canceled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. You have hidden our lives in Christ. And in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, all things hold together. Oh Lord, our lives are laid open before you. In your mercy, apply to us the sanctifying grace that you mediate through your living word. Please identify areas of our lives personally and corporately in your people that are not pleasing to you. Give us humility. Give us a willingness to be corrected by your word through faithful brothers and sisters. Please show us ways in which we need to grow in greater holiness and Christ-likeness. Show us how to apply our efforts to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in ways pleasing to you that you might be glorified in our lives to a greater degree tomorrow than you are today. Oh, Father, I thank you for this precious body. Thank you for the beloved saints here, Grace Church, Monterey Bay. Please strengthen them by grace to bear with one another, to forgive each other, to love each other, to bring your word regularly into conversation with one another. Lord, we pray that we would be walking in submission to the rule of Christ's peace and live and sing with thankfulness in our hearts to you, O God. We pray these things in the name and according to the character of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.